0: Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 9, and, um, hey, Brian, I'm sorry. Could, I don't want to make this thing pop. Can we turn down the, the amp right here? Maybe nobody else can hear it, but it's really loud behind me. I'm sorry. Thanks, buddy. Um, we're looking in Isaiah 9. It uh, is the beginning of Advent series, um, or the Advent season. and. Um, Uh, Andy's gonna start a new series on Christmas uh, next week, but it just seemed appropriate since it is the beginning of Advent that uh, we would look at a passage that tells of the coming of Jesus, the coming Messiah. And so if you've got a Bible, turn to Isaiah 9. Like I said, we're gonna be looking at the first seven verses of that. And um, thanks, man. Thank you, Brian. Um, While you do that, let me tell you a story. Um, When I was about three or four years old, one of my earliest memories, I think, and uh, I was with my mom, and we were shopping, and in my mind, as I remember this, we were in this clothing store, and, and I can kind of picture all the, the racks of clothing, and you know have the aisles, and you kind of like weave around there, and at some point, I lost track of my mom. Now, I'm sure she knew right where I was. She's a great mom, and so she knew where I was, but I lost track of her, and so I wasn't like really worried, but I wanted to find her. I wanted to see where my mom was. And of course, when you're, when you're three or four years old, you're, you're only this tall, and so I can't really see her over anything. I'm kind of looking through things. And I remember uh, looking through one of these aisles through the clothing, and I see her legs. She's wearing khaki pants. Because you remember, when you're, when you're only this big, you don't remember everything your parents are wearing. You don't really look that, you know, they're so tall. You just remember what they're wearing from the waist down. That's how you identify your parents. And so I, I see my mom's legs through these clothing, racks, and I make a beeline over there, and I grab her left leg, and I hear this voice say, I'm not your mom. <laughs> I was a little shocked. You know, your four-year-old, your little heart starts beating, you're like, oh, my goodness, you know? And I, and I look up, I look again, and I'm like, you're right, oh, my gosh, you're not my mom. This is, she's not who I thought she was. She's not who I was looking for. Have you ever thought that you, you knew somebody? You ever thought that you knew exactly who someone was? You know, maybe somebody that you really looked up to, maybe it was somebody you admired, maybe it's just a really close friend, somebody that you thought would always have your back. But at some point you look again and you go, they're not who you thought they were. You know, maybe it was somebody that you idolized growing up. You saw them, they were this hero figure, and and as you grew up, you though, you begin to learn more about them. Our heroes have a way of doing that sometimes. And you learn more about them, and you look again, and you go, you know, th- this just isn't the person who I thought they were. It can be really devastating. You know, it can be funny, too, by the way. You know, my wife Carrie and I, we were married for 10 years before I realized she was an extrovert, not real quick, okay? And, uh, but she's a quiet extrovert. I thought to be an extrovert, you had to be gre- gregarious in the life of the party and all the rest of it. She's a quiet introvert. But for 10 years, I didn't get that. And I'll tell you, when I finally realized this, it made so much sense. I, I could, I'm an intense introvert. I couldn't figure out why she wanted to leave the house and see people. It just didn't make sense to me at all if she was an introvert. So our, our marriage has made much more sense to me since then. So sometimes it can be funny. You know. You wake up one day and you go, man, this person that I know so well oh my goodness, there's something I never expected, I never realized. But it can also be devastating. It can be devastating to learn that somebody wasn't who you thought they were. And, and in some ways, this could be true of almost anything. You know, not just people. I mean, in one sense, it could be a, a new job that you take, and you think, this is the job. If I've got this job, this is gonna be so great. But then the longer you end the job, it, it's not what you thought it was. You know, maybe it's a new city. You, you make this move and you go to this new town and you think it's going to be great, it's going to be all of this, and then the longer you're there, you realize it's just not what you thought it was. So in some sense, it could be almost anything that disappoints us, that, that doesn't live up to our expectations. But it's people that hurt us the most. In, in the Old Testament, when you read the historical accounts of the kings... You remember there was King David and King Solomon, and then after that, the the nation of Israel divides, and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and and there's all these accounts of these kings. And you read about them in the books of Kings and Chronicles, aptly named. And and when you read it, these accounts, they are full of disappointment. They are full of disillusionment. They are full of dashed hopes. Because these kings... Time and time and time again, over and over again, they fail the people. They fail the nation. And over and over again, these kings come onto the scenes, and they are terrible kings. I mean the worst kings. Really, really horrible, evil kings. And, and what's more, even the good kings, because there's a few of them. You'll read some of these good kings, but there's always a but there's always a but. You know, it'll say in the account, this person did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but. And then it goes on and explains how they they failed. How they didn't live up to all the expectations. How they let everybody down. And so you can just imagine, for for the people of Israel living in the land, um, they... uh, after after centuries of all these failed kings, that that in the 8th century B.C., when this this prophet, this guy Isaiah, he comes on the scene, and he makes this this prophecy. He tells of this child. This child who would be born, who would be the new king. And this child would, he would unify the country. He would bring peace and justice and righteousness, and, and he would drive out all of their enemies. You can imagine what that must have meant to them. They hear this and they think, this is, exactly, this is exactly what we've been waiting for. This is exactly what we've been dreaming of. Now understand, for, uh, for the people that Isaiah is talking to in their day, they were not looking forward to a Messiah, not the way that we think of Messiah. Uh, that, was, that was a concept that actually came many, many years later. So what they were looking for very practically was a king. King right then and right there because they were living in a pretty terrible time, a pretty tumultuous time. You know, at the time that Isaiah is prophesying, they are still living under the rule of yet another really terrible king, King Ahaz, one of the worst, very evil king. And their whole region was living under uh, the oppressive regime of the Assyrian empire, okay? And at any moment, you didn't know when the Assyrians were going to have enough of you and decide to just come in and wipe you out. And so there's fear And they're living under this terrible king, and life is not great. In fact, Isaiah says in in, in chapter 8 of the book, it's actually going to get worse. And he describes it with the most hopeless terms. He says that that it will be a time of distress, a time of darkness, of fearful gloom. And he says that the people would be, quote, thrust into utter darkness. It's, It's not a happy scene. And so the people are looking for a king who will come and who will rescue them, who will save them. And in chapter 9, though, Isaiah, he interrupts, if you will. This description of darkness and gloom and distress, he interrupts it. And he speaks into this darkness to say that all is not lost, that hope remains, that within this darkness, a light is coming. And so in verse 1, he says this, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress In the past, he, speaking of God, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. What he's describing here, these were regions of the northern kingdom of Israel, which just a few years before had already been overrun by the Assyrian army. They'd already been plundered, they'd already been sacked, and so Isaiah's message was that while the northern kingdom had already been plundered, that in the future... God would restore them. Salvation was coming even for them. In verse two, he says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land in the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so again, he's using this descriptive imagery of darkness. Do you see it? In the midst of all this darkness, the people living and walking in darkness, Isaiah says, a light has dawned. And with this light comes victory. Victory over their enemies. Verse three, you have enlarged the nation increased their joy. So understand that the, 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 the land was shrinking on them in a sense. They had these, these oppressive regimes that would come in like the Assyrian Empire and they would come in and they would, they would take territory piece by piece, little by little, taking over settlements and cities. And so their land is shrinking in a sense. And now he says, oh, the tide is gonna turn. It's gonna be different. Their, your land is going to be enlarged and your joy will be increased and speaking of the people, they rejoice before you, O oh God, as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. How do you get plunder? By conquering. See, the tide is turned. You will be the conquerors, and you will divide the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, and this is an illusion, if you remember in the time of the judges, the Midianites were this people that were oppressing God's people, and so God raises up Gideon. And if you remember the story, Gideon doesn't overcome the Midianites by strength of arms. It's not because he's got this huge army, but instead it is God. God intervenes on their behalf and drives out the Midians, okay? And so this is a picture of that this is going to happen again. Just in the day of Midian's defeat, God is going to supernaturally intervene. He's going to do something that you couldn't do for yourselves. It says, You, God, have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning and will be fuel for the fire. This is vivid imagery, isn't it? This is triumphant battle imagery. This is picturing a conquering army that is triumphing over a, a vanquished enemy. And in the immediate context, what it's describing here is how God will overthrow the Assyrians. See, woven into this description of, of this battle that takes place and this conquering army, there, there's all these, in the language and the imagery, there's all these allusions back to Assyria. It's showing you that this is talking about Assyria. And it's as if Isaiah's is saying, okay, I get it, Assyria looks really scary right now. But just Wait. They will be completely annihilated. God is going to shatter Assyria's yoke. Do you see that in verse four? He's gonna shatter the yoke that burdens you, the bar across your shoulders, the rod of your oppressor. And then in verse five, get this, the Assyrian warriors' clothes, stripped from their dead bodies, I told you it was vivid, will be used to fuel your fires. This is, this is annihilation. This is complete conquest and victory. And God is going to do all of this, and it all begins with the birth of a child, which brings us to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. In the Hebrew, um, the the timeline of this is a little bit vague. It's not real clear. We don't know if, if Isaiah is describing a child who's already been born, or a child that will be born in the future, or a child that's being born kind of like right then, The timeline is is imprecise the way that the Hebrew is is written. But what is clear is that this child, this son, is a gift from God. To us, a son is given. The sense here is that it is God who gives this gift. And this gift is not just a gift to his parents, right? All of you with kids and grandkids, you oh, my kids are a gift to you. Yes, they're they're a gift to you as parents. But this child, he's a gift to all people, to the nation. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these titles, these are royal titles. These are kingly titles. This is, this is royal language that he's using here. In the ancient Near East, it was typical for, um, for kings to receive four royal titles when they became king, when they were coronated. Okay? And, and in that tradition those titles were often what's called theophoric, okay? Now, if I'm gonna lose you this morning, I'm gonna lose you right here, okay? So everybody try to hang with me, okay? So, so theophoric means that these names, these titles, they were derived from God's names, okay? So, so my son, Eli, in the Hebrew, that is my God. So that is a theophoric name in a sense because it's, he's named after God. But it's not saying that he's God. If you knew my five-year-old, you'd know he's definitely not divine. Okay. But, but in this context, and in this language, and how these th- theophoric titles were used within the ancient Near Eastern customs, um, it was somewhat ambiguous. Okay. So it could be intended to convey a sense of deity. It could be that it's saying, these kings are themselves divine. And, and you would expect that. Because in the ancient Near Eastern uh, tradition and culture, kings were often considered to be divine. Divine. You think about Egypt, Pharaoh, he was believed to be a god and worshipped as a god. And so for him, those titles would be conveying his deity, that he is divine, he is a god himself. But within the Jewish culture, within the Jewish nation, that would never be the case. That would be blasphemous. You would never believe that the king was actually divine, that he was actually god. Because from the time the people were rescued out of Egypt, God made it very, very clear. There was only one God, monotheism, hero Israel, the Lord your God, he is one. So they would never have believed or accepted this idea that God, or excuse me, that the king himself was a God or was divine. And so instead, these titles would be used to convey the the idea that, that the king is God's unique emissary on earth. That it, it's, it's as though God is ruling himself. God himself is ruling through this king. The king exercises God's authority, God's power, and God's might on God's behalf on earth. Okay, so just, just imagine for a moment, there's God sitting on his throne in heaven. All of his wisdom and his might and his glory and his authority, all of that is being channeled through this one king. It's as though God Himself is leading and ruling and reigning over the nation. Okay, that's the picture. That's what this language depicts. And so, Wonderful Counselor is describing the one who leads the nation with God's own divine wisdom. So, God gives His wisdom through this king, and the king leads the nation as though He Himself is God, in the sense that He is, he is using God's wisdom to lead. And to guide the nation. Mighty God. This is the picture and the idea that that God, again, God is the one who does this. He is the one who is great and mighty in battle. And he is going through this king. And he is defeating all of the nation's enemies. He is the everlasting father. In those days, um, kings' reigns were often described as everlasting. Now, it didn't mean that the king himself would be everlasting. It meant that their dynasty would never end. You see this language even used in the Old Testament of other kings who were clearly not divine. The idea of once you have your dynasty established, then it would be forever. It would be everlasting. And the father, understand that that God himself was the father of the nation of Israel. But the king, again, as God's special emissary, God's representative, he takes on that role as the father of the nation, watching over, providing for, caring for the nation. The prince of peace, again, this is God working through this king to defeat all of her enemies and to provide security and safety for the nation. Okay, everybody still with me? So that's, this is what this language is intended to, to depict. And Isaiah uses it in order to, to convey this idea that this king, this king he's telling us about, oh, you've never seen anything like him. He, he is a king like no other. He is a king who is greater and better than any king you've ever heard of. And under this king's rule, the nation flourishes. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So just to be clear, who's going to accomplish it? God. God is the one who will do it. God will raise up this king. God will set him on the Davidic throne. God will use him to establish peace and righteousness and justice forever. God will use him to drive out their enemies and to, to renew the land. God will do all of this through the child. And so we have to ask the question who's the child? Who's the child? Now, before you answer that too quickly, Some of you, you're overachievers, I know it. And and you're the kids on the front row of the class going, ooh, me, pick me, pick me, it's Jesus. Simmer down. You guys are really not rambunctious enough for me to even say that. I should say simmer up, simmer up, okay? Nod, show me you're conscious, okay. It's the masks, I know. It's hard to get oxygen, put you to sleep. I want you, I want you to do this. I want you to put yourselves in the shoes of Isaiah's audience, okay? I want you to put yourself in their context for a moment and understand that they, in in the time that they're living, they've got Ahaz, they've got the Assyrian army, they are looking for a king. Remember, they're not looking for this Messiah to come someday in the future. They're looking for a king right then who will, right then and there, save them, will will save them from, from their enemies and reestablish and bring restored glory to the nation. That's what they're looking for. See, we hear Messiah, we read this passage, we think Messiah, Jesus, but we gotta slow down for a moment here and and in the context understand what is it that his audience would understand? What would they hear? Now listen, before you get upset with me, please don't send me emails. I'm not saying that Isaiah was not prophesying about Jesus. I absolutely believe that he was, but the question is, what would Isaiah's audience, what would the people then have heard? And when they hear him using this kingly language, this royal language in these titles and he speaks of a king who will come and do all these things and be all of this for them, they are probably not thinking, oh, in 700 years, there's this guy named Jesus. Instead, what they're thinking, what all that points to for them is probably, most likely, a king named Hezekiah, who was the son of the current king, King Ahaz. See, Hezekiah was the soon-to-be next king. And so when you hear Isaiah saying, oh, there's this king, he's gonna be born, he's gonna do all of this, they go, okay, well, who's the next king? We're looking for a new king, so who's next in line? Hezekiah is the next in line. Ahaz is the king, Hezekiah is his son, ergo, Hezekiah is the one we're looking for. Hezekiah is the one that God's promised to us. It's gotta be Hezekiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. So in 2016, you guys remember 2016, right? It's been a little while. It feels like a lifetime ago. So in 2016, something utterly remarkable happened. I mean, something you, you would never have, have, in one sense, dreamed. It was, it was incredible. Borderline miraculous, even. In fact, to this day, I can hardly believe that it happened. And, and you guys all know exactly what I'm talking about. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. <laughs> Praise God, okay? Chicago Cubs won the World Series. 108 years of waiting, longing, losing, lovable losers, they called us. I've been a Cubs fan ever since I went to college in Chicago. We used to skip class in the afternoons, we'd get on the L and we'd go down, we watch the Cubs play and lose. But we saw Sammy Sosa hit, and hit home runs. We saw Kerry Wood pitch. We saw Dusty Baker uh, before he went on to other things and better things. Uh, we would go down and we'd watch the Cubs. And we'd cheer the Cubs on these beautiful, beautiful spring days. I have been a Cubs fan for years. And in 2016, we won the World Series. But can I be honest with you? And uh, listen, I don't mean to sound ungrateful, right? But if you ask any Cubs fan, they'll tell you, we kind of wanted more. See, see, that team, that team was amazing. That team was remarkable. I had some Cubs fans here in the first service, and they were all nodding at me. They were like, yes, he even had a Cubs mask on. It was an amazing team. They looked fantastic. They had the best GM in baseball. They had a great manager. They had all these fantastic players, a former, former MVP, a future MVP, and they were all aged like 23. It looked like the glory days were all to come. And so what we wanted, what we expected, what we were hoping for was that this wouldn't be one World Series. Oh no, this was a dynasty in the making. We were gonna get two, three, four World Series. But it didn't happen. And in the four years since, can I tell you that we underachieved and now the GM's gone, the manager's gone, they're gonna start trading the players and at the same time, the Assyrian Empire, who I like to call the St. Louis Cardinals, (laughs) has been growing in strength By the way, the Babylonian Empire, that's the Yankees. Truly, truly the evil empire. It's for you, Danny. Um, You know what? We we don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Yeah, yeah. See, we had high hopes. This was the team that was going to be the next dynasty. We were going to see all these championships, but then we looked again, and the team just wasn't the team that we thought they were. Hezekiah was the 2016 Cubs of the Jewish kings. By the way, if the, if the Cubs analogy doesn't work for you, just think co- uh, cowboys every off-season, okay? Just every off-season, you think this is the year, right? Okay, Hezekiah, by all accounts, he was a great king. He was a phenomenal king. See, his, he was so much better than his dad. His dad, King Ahaz, was a terrible king, one of the worst kings ever. In the pantheon of evil kings, King Ahaz, man, one of the worst he forbade worship of God. He closed the temple. He promoted idol worship. He was corrupt and unjust. And they, they made all these terrible political alliances. Super evil king. And Hezekiah, he undid almost everything his dad had done. According to scripture, in everything he did, he prospered and the nation prospered right along with him. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a great king by almost every account. But, see, there's always a but. If you read in Second uh, Chronicles, there's a great summary. You can read longer accounts in other places, but in 2 Chronicles, it, it sums it up very nicely. so that Hezekiah became proud and that his pride ultimately led to the fall of the nation, not in his lifetime, but eventually. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians. And the people were carried off into exile. See, Hezekiah, he was a great king, but he never lived up to the prophecy. He wasn't the king that they hoped for. He looked so good for a while. And the people looked again and they realized that he wasn't the king they were hoping for. He wasn't the king that they thought he was. And once again, they were left disappointed and disillusioned. But not just with Hezekiah. No, with God. See, God was the one who said he would raise up the king. God is the one who said he would do all these things, but then he didn't. Have you ever been disillusioned with God? Have you ever been disappointed by God? you ever felt like God wasn't there when you needed him the most? He failed you. Maybe some of you, even this morning, you're, you're at this place where you're just not sure about God anymore. You know, you come to a place like this, you come to a church, and we think about how loving God is, how he cares for you, but you don't see it. In fact, there's a part of you that, that may be even afraid to look all that closely at God. I'm sure you believe in God, and you can go through the motions, but you kind of want to keep your distance because the hurt just runs so deep. So you have to imagine at some point that the the people of Israel, they started to feel like it wasn't just their kings who were letting them down. It was God. I mean, God is the one who said that he would place a descendant of David upon the throne, but but he hadn't done it. He would protect their nation, but but there are all these invading armies and invading empires, and, and he would conquer and he would drive them all out, but he hadn't done it. God, when are you gonna do it? When are you gonna show up and do what you said you would do? God, when will you do what you promised you would do? In fact, some scholars and some skeptics, they, they look at this, this very prophecy right here in Isaiah 9, and they, they look at this and they, they point to it as evidence that God doesn't do what he says he will do. That God said something would happen and it didn't happen. I mean, after all, this was God himself speaking through his prophet Isaiah who said he would do all of these things. He would raise up this king, but it didn't happen. And maybe, maybe, God isn't who you think he is. Maybe if you look again, you'll find he's not who you thought he was. Maybe it's not people who've hurt us the most. Maybe it's God. Years ago, um, a friend of mine he, uh, he walked away from the faith. And he told me very clearly, I mean, it's just uh, very simply, he, he left the faith, he walked away from God because he found that God wasn't who he thought he was. At, w- at one point, there was um, a tragedy in his life. It was just that, it was tragic, it was uh, incredibly painful, heartbreaking. And, and for him, what that experience revealed to him was that God wasn't who he thought he was. He'd always thought God was loving and compassionate and caring, but then clearly, clearly, for this to happen, he wasn't. And the closer he he looked at God following that tragedy, the more he became convinced that God wasn't real. He didn't exist. He he was just a a myth, a figment of his imagination. You have to imagine that for, for people... Isaiah's day and following, that they, they'd heard this prophecy, they knew of this prophecy, they were looking for this king, and, and all the hope it had built up, and then for it not to happen, that maybe somewhere along the line they think, maybe, maybe God isn't who we think he is. Maybe this whole prophecy, this king we've been looking for, maybe all of that, man, maybe it's all just make-believe. It's just a myth, just a figment of our imagination, But then something really crazy happened. See, Hezekiah he died, and years passed, and Jerusalem was uh, overthrown by the Babylonians, and the people were led into captivity. And then, then years more years passed, and Persia conquers Babylon and, and over time people are brought back into Israel and into the land I should say and, and, and the city is rebuilt the walls are rebuilt and the temple is rebuilt and, and, but then after 400 years of silence God just completely stops talking to the people 400 years of silence and then suddenly God whispered look again because there was this new king this new child who was born. And he was given by God he, in a way that they never could have dreamed, they never could have expected. I mean, here was a child who was actually conceived by God, born to this, this virgin girl in the middle of a nowhere place, but in the middle of nowhere town that no one had ever heard of. And the people who, who knew about it when they heard about this child who was gonna be born and even after he was born, they said the craziest things about him. They said that he was the, the light of God. They said that he was the light of light, the, the light of life that would pierce the darkness. They said all these things about him. And, and, then, and then this child, when he's born, he grows up to be this man, Jesus, who gives himself all these just outlandish titles, right? These, these, these divine titles. He says that he's the son of God that he's the light of the world, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life. He says all these extraordinary, outrageous claims and titles about himself. He says that if we've seen him, we've seen the everlasting father. And he says that he's a king, but his kingdom isn't of this world. And of course, not everybody believed it. Uh, The religious and political leaders at the time, they hated this. They, They hated that Jesus made these claims about himself and took on these divine titles they hated the fact that people believed him and followed him, and so they had to do something about it. And so they, they took him to trial. They had him convicted on unjust charges, made-up charges, and they had him beaten and they had him executed, and they watched him die. And when they saw him die and when they saw him put in the grave, they congratulated themselves. So much for that so called king of the Jews. So much for that guy. But three days later, God said, Look again. And the tomb was empty. I know some of you feel disillusioned with God, and you have felt disappointed by God. You know, maybe your theology is, is really good, and so you know that God never promises that our life is gonna be perfect or, or carefree or comfortable. He never says any of that. And yet, and yet, the, the hurt and the pain that you've experienced, it cuts so deep. You're not sure if you can really trust God again. And can I just tell you, Look again look again. When the the dark cloud of life starts to creep in, when you feel that hopelessness, and you feel like God has let you down and failed you, look again. Because Jesus, he is the light who pierces the darkness. He is the wonderful counselor who shows us the path to life. He's the mighty God who has defeated all of our greatest enemies sin and death. He is the everlasting Father who rose again from the dead, who will never die, who is eternal, the one who cares for us and loves us. He's the Prince of Peace who holds all our fears at bay. He is the promise that never fails. Don't you see, Jesus is the King that our hearts have been waiting for. He's the only one who will never disappoint us. Can I tell you something? Um, If you're a follower of Jesus, someday you will see him face to face. You'll stand in his presence and, and maybe you'll be able to share with him even. Maybe show him the scars that you have. The hurts that you've carried. All the ways people have failed you. Ways that you failed yourself, and and even those ways, those times where you felt like he was silent, where he failed you, where he wasn't there when you needed him the most, and you couldn't understand, and you'll show all of that to him. You know what I think? I think he'll smile and say, Look again. And you'll look and you will discover that none of it was what it seemed. It was always more. It was more than you ever could have understood at that time. It was more than you could have hoped, more than you could have dreamed. And you will discover that he has, through all of it, he has made you whole. If you're starting to lose hope today, if you've lost your hope in God, you don't trust him the way that you used to or maybe that you ever have, If you feel that darkness beginning to creep in, look again. He is our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the king that our hearts have always longed for. Uh, Brian and, and James and the band, they're going to come back up and close us out here. Um, Listen, if if you have never considered Jesus, if you've never really looked hard at Jesus and who he claims to be and what scripture says about him as the very son of God, the one who came and lived a perfect life and died in our place for our sins, if you've never looked at his death and resurrection and what that means for us, the promise of the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, if you've never taken a hard look at that for yourself, and I hope you will. I hope you will. Or maybe if, if you've heard all of this before, but it's just never really meant that much to you. It's never really sunk in. Look again. Lord Jesus, you are the king of kings and you are the Lord of lords. You are the king that our hearts have always longed for. The only king that will never disappoint us. The only king to which there will never be said, but... Lord, I know some of us, um, it's been a crazy year, a tumultuous year, and some of us, we we feel hurt. We feel disillusioned. Hurt by other people, hurt by our circumstances, <clears throat> hurt by the way we feel like life has failed us, even hurt by the way we feel you failed us. Lord, if, if any of us are there this morning, anyone feeling that, I pray that you would just draw them to yourself. I pray that you would show them your love, that they would look again and they would see that you are all that you've promised to be, that you've never let us down, you've never left their side, you're always there. And that one day, one day, you'll return. This will all make sense. And until then, we just keep our eyes fixed upon you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.